Hello and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Two issues repeatedly stymie efforts to aggressively address the challenge of climate change. The issues, how much it will cost to curb warming and prepare for its effects, and who will bear these costs, frequently play out in the political arena, where divisions form between expected economic climate winners and losers. While the science of climate change is generally understood, understanding of the costs of global warming remains murky in the public eye. Today's guest is Per Crusell, an economist whose focus is on understanding the economic impact of global warming. Per is here to shed some light on the costs of climate change and offer insights into policies that might help manage these costs. Per, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Per is professor of economics at Stockholm University and a member of the Nobel Prize for Economics Committee within the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. He is currently a visiting scholar at the Climate Center for Energy Policy, and he's currently working on a long-term project on the interaction between climate change and the economy. Per, this is a timely topic. What specifically are economists referring to when talking about the costs of global warming? Yeah, that's a a good question. Actually, it's a harder question than you might imagine because uh, climate change uh, changes the preconditions for production. It it affects people's health and so on. And so it's very complicated to answer that question uh, fully. And I think we know less about this question than we do about climate change as a natural science phenomenon. Uh, But economists have a number of ways to, to measure the costs and for some regions it's actually a benefit because it's nicer with warmer weather so so i think there's just a long list of different things you can do as a researcher to narrow down uh, these costs and they vary depending on which region you're in interesting so in some places they're costs in some places they're benefits yes how did you get involved in this uh, I my background has no uh, environmental economics in it. Uh, I simply have been working as a macroeconomist for many years. But what happened was that uh, as a result of the Stern review coming out uh, about ten years ago, many economists and uh, climate scientists uh, decided to uh, maybe start approaching each other and work together. And there was an initiative in Stockholm where somebody asked me are you interested and the reason they asked me is that I'm, I'm i'm kind of good at the global economy and figuring out macroeconomic uh, impacts of things so i i was asked and then uh, i thought wow this seems like a good way to use my skills you mentioned the stern initiative was that an earlier research into economics no uh, so the stern change? review is simply uh, something that came about as a result of uh, the Ministry of Finance in the UK, uh, they uh, decided to look into the issue of climate change from an economics perspective. And Nick Stern, uh, or I, th- I believe Lord Nick Stern, is a, is a well-known economist who was put in charge of this. And then he wrote this long report referred to as the Stern Review. And it came up with pretty big numbers and big enough numbers that a lot of policymakers uh, open their eyes to to the topic. So a lot of people were influenced by his review. The the impacts of climate change in terms of, of the weather impacts, the the environmental impacts are very complex. But the the impact on economics and the costs of climate change are something that I think are 
in certain ways even more complex and, and not very well understood. How well are these understood by governments uh, who have to deal with these issues? I would say not very well. I mean, what you can do, of course, is that you can uh, read through the most recent literature and the most recent literature has numbers that you can use uh, as you know, guidance for what to, what to do in policy. But uh, the, to really understand the issue, you, you would have to really get down to the nuts and bolts of how we researchers measure these things. But I, I think governments are aware of the costs and that they can be substantial in some regions. And so I think there's clearly an awareness. I think the, 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 the challenge is maybe more on the implementation side, what to do. Are the numbers out there at this point? Yeah, no, I think the numbers are out there uh, and they're being discussed. And there's a lot of disagreement on numbers as well. Uh, so, of course, and par- particularly because I think the economic side of climate change is the area where we know the least. So I think there the uncertainty is even bigger than in, just in terms of the question of how much will Earth warm as a result of emissions. Okay, so let's, let's jump to the numbers here. How much does preparing for and mitigating climate change cost and how much do we need to spend today? And this could be globally, nationally. Yeah, so we, we think about it from the economics perspective uh, by computing something we call the social cost of carbon, uh, which is what is the net damage of emitting a unit of carbon into the atmosphere uh, in terms of these costs that occur in a variety of places and uh, in a variety of uh, forms. And so per each unit, we can compute uh, in dollar terms what the cost is that the emitter, for example, you when you drive your uh, I don't know, motorcycle to, uh, to work. Wish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much should you pay extra for that unit that you emit? And the numbers uh, in terms of dollars are, uh, they go in a huge range because there's not one number. And the reason is that there's a philosophical input into the number, which is how much do we care about future generations? And that's something that economists can't decide. I mean, we do the computations. If you tell me I don't care about future generations, then the number is kind of a low number. If you say I care as much about future generations as I care about this generation and myself, you get a huge number. So it's not up to us to decide what that number is. But you know, we can provide some guidance. We can say here are some uh, frequently used ways of thinking about how you compare the welfare of future and current generations. And then based on that, I can give you a number. So I can tell you that the one that's used in Sweden is actually $600 per gigaton of carbon. And gigatons of carbon doesn't maybe tell you very much. You mean each ton of gigaton of carbon causes $600 of damage? Of damage on net across the globe. Okay. So that's it's, future damage. That's that's current and future damage. And and it's it, it's sort of occurring now. And then if you emit a unit or a gigaton of carbon now, it's going to cause damage now. A little bit more uh, in a few years because the warming takes a little bit of time. So the warming is a little higher in a few years. And then it's going to slowly decay, but it doesn't decay to zero. There will be warming from that unit you emit today in... 200 years from now, 500 years from now. And the reason is that carbon stays in the atmosphere very long. And that's one of the issues. And that's why we re- it really matters if you put 
a big weight on future generations or not because it stays in the atmosphere so long. So, so the Swedish number, we, we, or I shouldn't say we, I mean, the Swedish government has decided to have a high uh, number in their calculations and they've also implemented a, a carbon tax that's very high and that's in line with their uh, high number. And they put high weight on future generations. And it, it means, actually, I did the computation this morning, uh, it means that you would basically add a dollar to each gallon of gas that you buy at the, at in, the pump. In Sweden? No, here. Oh, here. So, so, suppose we were to use the, the, the tax used in Sweden, which is based on a high weight on future generations, and the numbers of out there for the damages today and the damages in the future, it would be like a dollar uh, more expensive to buy a gallon of gas. Interesting. So there's a moral part to that calculation. There's a big moral part. The social cost of carbon. And interestingly enough, timely enough, in the United States, there's been discussion, particularly within the Trump administration, of what that social cost of carbon should be. Can you give us a little bit of insight in what the conversation is here at this point? Uh, Well, I'm not sure I followed the latest, but uh, I think that there is a big range, first of all, of views in terms of the pure climate science of it. Uh, I think there the economists don't really t- uh, participate much because it's a matter of climate scientists A saying something and climate scientists B saying something slightly different. That has to do with simply how much will temperature go up uh, when you drive your motorcycle. Uh, and and I think there is clear uncertainty in that. I think you can take the view that the temperature won't go up very much. It just will not be a big problem. But the people who say that, they, uh, they, <clears throat> they are not really sure. So I, I think it's kind of wise to go somewhere in the, like the middle of, of the range of what people think. And then I say, yes, there's warming. So that's, I think there's debates over that. Then there's debates about how will this benefit, say, the U.S., how will it benefit other countries. And there, uh, I think that the, you could be influenced by whether you care about the outcomes for the U.S. only or whether you care about the world. And I think there, that's another big source of disagreement between whoever participates in this debate. So I think sometimes the, maybe the, is the focus simply on the U.S., simply on the international uh, that, that, that's a big determinant of who thinks what, I think. You've indicated there's a lot of uncertainty here. If you're looking into the future and, and damage that may come from coastal flooding, for example, what specifically are you looking at in terms of when you're doing your calculations? What are you taking into account? Uh, loss to business, loss to revenue for the, the, the municipality, whatever it may be. So these kinds of calculations, I have to say first, I mean, I'm a researcher, I have to answer, I don't do them myself, I rely on the, the research that other people do. Mm-hmm. And I think th- this particular question has attracted some attention, but, but hasn't been researched enough. So I think in the US, this uh, would immediately make you think about what ways you might have of protecting yourself against the flooding and what the cost of that might be. But if you're looking at Bangladesh, a country that's populated by a huge number of people, uh, they are under the threat of sea level rise. And there, 
I think that the 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 the, the policies that are uh, contemplated don't involve building walls or protections. It's simply about how much is it going to cost when the flood comes and where people have to move to different areas. Uh, so I think depending on where this occurs, the way to uh, do calculations about it is is uh, a bit different depending on if it's a rich country that can uh, take some sort of precaution to prevent damages how much does that precaution cost or if it's poor countries that probably can't afford to do that and they just have to kind of we have to calculate what do we think is going to happen when when the flood really comes i mean flood or when the sea level rise will make it more frequent to see floodings in highly populated areas. Again, is there a number? Global GDP, what we would have to spend to address climate change and range? The way the way I think about it is that I'm I'm a believer of the use of social cost of carbon to guide the the, the policy choice of how to address limiting the warming. I don't think we should stop the warming entirely because it is efficient to use fossil fuel. Uh, so I think adding a tax is a good idea in principle. And so that's, I think, the right way to address global warming. Add this tax that you, uh, I think, should pay because you incur costs on other people by emitting fossil fuel. Of course, when a flooding occurs, you have to deal with it. It occurs even today. So, you know, we should take precautions against those regardless. Uh, And rich countries do a better job. They're richer. They can do it. So I think the way to think about climate change maybe is more mitigation. We should make sure that you pay the price of the real price of emitting carbon. And then it's about this this carbon price. You don't need to use a tax on carbon. There are alternatives, but that's kind of the primary way of thinking about it, at least, I think. You've written that certain investments in certain areas and mitigation actually bring better returns. For example, investing in a, a rich country versus getting uh, mitigation efforts in, a, in a, an emerging country or an economically developing country. Can you tell, tell us about that? Yeah, so I think... Uh, Again, I, I'll use my uh, my uh, country of birth, Sweden, as an example, uh, because Sweden really stands out in terms of having a var- very high tax on carbon. And uh, most politicians uh, stating clearly they care a lot about this issue, they want to do something. So in Sweden, you pay very high taxes for every unit of carbon that you emit. And there's currently... Uh, uh, seems to be an agreement among all the major parties that we should cut our, uh, say, gasoline use to zero by 2030. Uh, I think that's a crazy policy because I think uh, the Saudi oil, for example, is very cheap to produce. It's enormously beneficial for us uh, in creating energy and it's efficient to use it. So I think that the, the, the notion that everybody should go to zero, everybody should cut their own emission to zero, is just not a reasonable rule of thumb. Instead, you should cut it where it's not very efficient. And I think there are plenty of examples, even close to Sweden in Europe, where uh, they use very inefficient sources of fuel. I mean, where, for example, coal that's very expensive to produce... It produces some energy, but that, that business is barely profitable. Uh, just put a tiny tax there, and 
that coal won't be used, that will be socially beneficial because the cost is too high. Uh, so I think looking outside of your own backyard is a good idea in this case. You should cut the use of fossil fuel where it's not very efficient. And that can be in poor countries. Uh, but there are many examples where in poor countries they really need some source of energy and they don't really have an alternative. And then I think they should use it there. But, but so I think it varies from area to area. You should think where is it, where, where's, uh, uh, where's the best uh, place to, uh, to cut. And as an economist, I just have to use economic efficiency here. I mean, I, I, rather than other rules of thumb. We have a range of renewable subsidies today in the United States, but no carbon price. Are a carbon price and subsidies for clean energy and efficiency actually the opposite side of the same coin? Well, you might, you might think they are, but I would first of all say that if you use a carbon price, if you use a tax on carbon, uh, then it's not clear you have to subsidize uh, green technology because uh, green technology has lives its own life if it's efficient uh, it will be produced by firms they will realize that there's a tax on coal okay that opens up for alternative energy sources and maybe we don't even need to subsidize them so if we tax carbon i think you'll see automatically the emergence of green technology that's number one. Uh, but if you don't use a tax on carbon, then I think you do need to subsidize uh, green technologies. The, the problem I see with subsidies to green technologies is that it opens up for kind of a lobby of green technology firms that claim that they are the best new energy form, but they're really not that good. And unless they become good enough that they challenge say, the, the coal industry, or the worldwide I'm referring to, not specifically the U.S. coal. But unless the green technology becomes so good as a result of these subsidies that it really uh, beats the fossil competition, it's not really of use from the climate perspective. You see that, that, uh, that what we need to do to limit warming is to limit fossil fuel emissions. And if we don't, we don't manage the, the problem. So it has to be that these green technologies... Um, beat the beat the, the the bad fossil fuels, the ones that are not so efficient. Uh, can countries go it alone on carbon pricing? If if one country introduces a carbon price, uh, can it still be globally competitive with other countries that don't? This is a frequently asked question. It's a good question. Uh, I think. The empirical data-oriented way to answer this question would be to say, let's try to randomly make some countries uh, use a high carbon price and see what happens to them. Okay, We don't have this experiment, so I can't tell you, yes, we know. But we, we do have Sweden, again, as a little bit of an experiment, because for whatever reason, Swedish governments decided to do this. So you could see how Sweden fared, and I think Sweden fared very well, actually, we've... we've uh, um, we've experienced the same great recession as you have uh, here in how the U.S. How old are the, the, um, the taxes in Sweden? Sorry? How, how far back do the Swedish taxes well, go? Well, they, they, they started with the tax already in the 1990s, and they, they have then uh, raised it. Initially, some industries were exempt, but now I think pretty much all the industries pay this price. We don't just pay it as... 
at the gas pump. I mean, the, it's paid by industry, and and uh, as a result, you might expect that these companies try to relocate abroad where the price of energy is lower, but that hasn't happened so far. We we are in a fortunate situation, or Sweden is in a fortunate situation, in that we have quite a bit of uh, hydropower. Um, and we have nuclear, so it's not like we were completely dependent on fossil fuel. But I think the Swedish example suggests that you can go at it alone, probably, or to a larger, larger extent than we may think. I think the answer to why this might be is that there's a lot of energy saving that can be done, uh, low-hanging fruit, uh, just uh, it doesn't make, cost much. It doesn't cost that much, and then there is green technology. So we, of course, Sweden has adopted uh, various forms of uh, uh, various forms of green technology. Some of which are very efficient. Some of which, you know, we're still trying out. Uh, so, so I think the answer is probably yes. But I, you know, I would want to see more countries try it before I'm absolutely sure. But my belief is that yes, it it would be possible to actually go at it alone. But it would be better if. All countries or more countries did it at the same time. Um, a price on carbon shows up generally in, in two different ways, the way we think about it. One is a carbon tax, one is cap and trade. From an economist's perspective, is one better than the other? Uh, the, the, the economist would say, actually, uh, the economist would typically say, well, let's assume this and let's derive uh, a theorem that says they are equivalent. So w- they are in some ways equivalent. Uh, namely, if... You set the cap on this trading of emission rights, uh, set it in such a way that the price in the market of an emission right, so a firm would need to buy an emission right to emit the unit. If the market price becomes the same as the tax they would have had to pay under the tax system, you know, it's, it's the same, it's equivalent. So under some assumptions that economists make, uh, yeah, they're, they're equivalent. But in the EU, uh, this system was adopted and... The price of these emission rights, it was initially uh, kind of at the medium level. It was somewhat somewhat costly for firms to use them. But then uh, as a result of the Great Recession and low demand, uh, firms didn't use so much energy and the price went down all the way to almost zero. So now there effectively is no tax on carbon in, in Europe, even though there is a cap and trade system. So I would say, no, that didn't work very well in practice. Uh, you could imagine ways of fixing it. But uh, the fixing it would have to involve, uh, okay, lower the cap. We just withdraw a lot of trading rights from the market. I mean, you could imagine a central bank that transacts in the market for trading rights and just buys up a lot of trading. So the price goes up so as to hit the appropriate price of carbon uh, that you know, you would have if you had a tax. I think tax is easier for that reason. It looks too complicated to run a cap-and-trade system. But by all means, if a region wants to do that and does it well, it's okay. Here's the million-dollar question. Is there a politically feasible way to price carbon? I think political feasibility is, yes, a million-dollar question. Uh, And I know that a tax on carbon can be viewed as very threatening. Um, I think one idea might be that if you use the revenues locally, uh, so suppose you tax it at the pump, but the revenue doesn't go to Washington, the revenue goes to the local community, maybe 
to be used towards schools or or what have you, then I think people might feel a bit more like they're they're actually in charge themselves. They participate in the uh, in the fight against global warming, but they actually get some benefits back, which is which is that they uh, they get more revenue for. Um, whatever needs you might have and different local communities could use this money in different ways so i think that that's an idea it's a way of thinking about a tax that is i think less um problematic but i think it's an open question really i think one one that would be a good attempt you know try it out uh try out the local version why not uh per thanks for talking Thanks a lot, Andy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now. If you like the show, please get the word out by giving us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Energy Policy Now is on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and others. And for updates on research and events from the Climate Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Have a great day. 